0: peruse the eunuch's pole. Q U you yuletide michaels welcome to the blind by podcast lovely feedback for last week's episode where i spoke about sudden mystery arse pain I had a lot of people contact me about sudden mystery arse pain to say how relieved they were to finally hear someone speak about it a lot of people out there thinking that they were alone with sudden mystery arse pain and I'm glad to have brought comfort to so many of your lives. This is the last podcast before Christmas. This is my last podcast before Christmas Day. It is the 22nd of December. Yesterday was the 21st of December. It was the winter solstice, which you don't notice it, but it's always good news. The old winter solstice, it's always nice to hear. Yeah, it's welcome news when nature says, the days are going to start getting gradually longer. Because fuck me, darkness at half four is the absolute anti-crack. Not only darkness at half four, but like, the sun just behaving like a snaky bastard in general. Like, the, the December sun, even on a clear day, and you look at the sun in December, and it's just leaning against the sky. It's like a shit lamp over in the corner. That's not what I want out of the sun. I want the sun dangling from the ceiling of the world. No lampshade, Like a big giant student flat. Hanging right above my head. But not in December. sun is just like, I'm just going to lean over here against the sideboard. And give you a big weird lanky shadow at noon. So fair play to the winter solstice, you glorious cunt. But speaking of Christmas and the few days of leisure that we'll have. Because um, no one's going to be going to the pub. Because it's, it's closing at five. Due to Omnicron, Or Omicron. That's the proper name. Omicron. I'm going to call it Omnicron, Because it sounds more like a villain. But yes. I want to recommend some fantastic television. For you to watch. For you to binge on. Over the Christmas period. So if you've been following me on social media. Or listening to this podcast over the years. I never shut up about a TV series called Gamara, right? Um, because season five is just out now. It came out on the eighteenth of December, and I'm watching it at the moment. But Gamara is—it's an Italian crime series that I'm always urging everybody to watch. I suppose it's the hipster in me, because the thing is, I consider Gamara to be up there with like The Sopranos or The Wire. It's as good as them. I don't have a problem mentioning Gamara in the same breath that I'd mentioned those TV shows. But when I, like, chat to people who are into, like, decent box set TV or whatever you want to call it. Now, the box sets aren't really... They don't exist. There's no such thing as DVDs. But when I speak to people who list out, like, really good bingeable TV series... I rarely hear people mentioning Gamara. And I'm like, fuck it, you got to watch Gamara. And it's basically, it's an Italian crime series, but it's not about the mafia. So when you think of Italy and criminals, you always think of the mafia. But up in Naples in northern Italy, there's a separate crime syndicate called the Gamara. And they're a bit more like street gangs, a bit more like US street gangs. They're not like the mafia. And the TV series Gamara is about them. And it's kind of based on real events. So Gamara the TV series is based on a book that a journalist called Roberto Savistano wrote about the Gamara Wars in Naples in the 2000s. And the reason Gamara is so good is... Like, first off, the, the obvious things the writing is top-notch the acting is top-notch the characters are incredible the use the direction is brilliant the visual storytelling the use of music the only setback with it is that it's in italian so there's subtitles but you forget about that very quickly because it's just too good you forget that there's subtitles very quickly and also a lot of the storytelling is visual and soundtrack based the way the soundtrack is used with the story is just excellent tension and the one thing that sets Gamara apart from other crime dramas that I've seen is if you think of any crime drama eventually the police get involved So whatever you can think of Sopranos, The Wire, whatever it's goodies and baddies you've got the criminals and then the police become characters And the show becomes about the police trying to catch the criminals. And that's kind of a standard storytelling arc with any crime drama. Gamara is... The police are there, but they don't feature at all. It's really weird. Also, within Gamara, there's not really such thing as goodies or baddies. It's just everyone is varying degrees of badness. And what that does then is it creates this this sense of chaos that makes it not feel real. Like Gamara is set in this gigantic housing estate in Naples called Scampia with these massive tower blocks that look like pyramids. And Scampia is a real place. It was built in the 1960s after an earthquake in Naples. And thousands of people became displaced. So the government just built this scampia place really quickly and shoved a bunch of people out there very isolated they didn't really finish building it even and the people there were really f- forgotten and left quite disenfranchised so it became very lawless and the camara gangs took over but because Gamara doesn't have the conventional goody versus baddie Morality storytelling that you're used to with other crime dramas because it doesn't have that, and because the area of Scampia is so otherworldly, Gamara ends up feeling like really weird post apocalyptic science fiction. It doesn't feel real, even though it's based on real events. So, that's my little recommendation, that's my little Christmas present. Um, if you're sitting on your hoop over Christmas going what will I binge watch on TV because I can't go to the pubs get a crack at Gamara and it's on it's on the streaming service now now is the name of the streaming service it's on now and all five seasons are there and just start from the start go from the beginning and what binge all five seasons because it's phenomenal that's technically an advert because I told you where you can see it I mentioned the streaming service now. And they have advertised on this podcast before. So that's technically an advert. But it's also not because I want to tell you about it anyway. Um, I've been roaring and shouting about Gamara since 2014. Because it's incredible and I don't hear enough people talking about it. At one point a couple of years ago I I was talking about Gamara so much on social media that the people who were making Gamara sent me a chocolate pizza in the post. Which I've never fully gotten my head around. Because I suppose it's Italian and pizza is Italian and you can't just send me a pizza from Italy. So they sent me a chocolate pizza in the post. And I was very appreciative of it. But I don't know, it'd be like me sending an Italian person a pint of Guinness made out of biscuits. So this week's podcast is going to be festive. Um, I've been asked multiple times can you do a hot take about Christmas so I'll have a go at doing a hot take about Christmas now me personally I have a complicated relationship with Christmas because I didn't really grow up with Christmas I grew up with like half a Christmas my dad was I suppose a bit of a communist and he really wasn't into the the commercialism and the consumerism and the festivities and the pageantry of christmas he viewed it as unnecessarily consumerist and capitalist so i didn't really grow up with like i didn't have santa claus i didn't i didn't get the crushing disappointment of finding out that santa claus wasn't real but i did get presents so i grew up with like the good bits of Christmas but not the festivities of Christmas so we would have all had a family dinner because that's lovely because that's just human connection and eating a nice meal I'd have gotten gifts I mightn't have gotten my gifts on Christmas day I might have gotten them a few days beforehand or scattered all around different days didn't have a Christmas tree never grew up with a Christmas tree or Christmas decorations in my house except one year when I was about 7 or 8 and I was like all my friends have got fucking Christmas trees in their house can we have a Christmas tree at least so my ma came up with a compromise which was utterly bizarre now that I look back but we had a like a plastic palm tree like an all year round little palm tree that was made out of plastic and this looked nothing like a fucking Christmas tree this was like a plastic tropical palm tree that was two foot tall and my ma put tinsel and one bauble on it and that was my half Christmas Christmas tree and the closest thing I had to kind of a Santa Claus mythology was one of my older brothers used to tell me a story about a friend of his so his buddy was Irish and he was an English teacher and he'd moved to Japan to do like TEFL teaching Right, And this would have been the early 90s. So no internet, nothing like that. So this Irish fella is over in Japan teaching English. And he's the only Western teacher in the school. So all the other teachers, his co-workers are Japanese people. And in Japan, they don't really celebrate Christmas at all. So he starts mentioning to the other teachers... Ah, fuck it, yeah, I'd love to go back to Ireland for Christmas, you know, but I'm going to stay in Japan this Christmas, but I'd love to be back home in Ireland. I'm feeling quite homesick. So his co-workers decide, let's do something nice for the Irish lad. When he comes in tomorrow, let's put some Christmas decorations up around the office and stuff so that he feels at home. So they do. And then he comes in the next morning into the staff room big huge surprise everyone's cheering happy Christmas, happy Christmas and he looks up on the wall and he sees that Santa Claus is nailed to a crucifix and I grew up hearing that story and I used to think it was hilarious I used to say to myself of course, they don't have Christmas in Japan they probably went and looked into a book and they're like alright okay it's Santa Claus something to do with Christ alright fair enough nail him to a crucifix and that was my Christmas story and I loved it I thought it was so funny and then as soon as the internet came about when I was a bit older I found out that's just like a big urban myth it didn't happen to my brother's friend that's there's multiple versions of that story that kind of went around as an urban myth uh, about people in japan nailing santa claus to crucifixes because they'd never heard of christmas it's not true it's harsh shit it's a made-up urban myth and that finding that out that was like when other people found out santa claus wasn't real but i did find out one thing about christmas and japan that balanced it out a little bit something that's true so christmas is recognized in japan but it's quite different like japan ...isn't a Christian country... ...so there's no association with Christ or anything like that... ...they have Christmas markets... ...they have Christmas lights... ...it's like a lovely winter festival that they do... ...but one thing that's really odd... ...in Japan... ...eating Kentucky Fried Chicken on Christmas Day... ...is a tradition... ...and... ...it's an interesting story... ...so I did a podcast a couple of months back... ...about the history of KFC in Ireland... I spoke about a Limerick man in the 70s called Pat Grace who was a bit of an eccentric individual and he met Colonel Sanders, the real Colonel Sanders over in Canada and he got the franchise for opening KFCs in Ireland but when he came back and opened them he then had a a dispute with KFC and said fuck ye, I'm going to open my own restaurants but keep the recipe and now as a result Limerick is the only place in the world where you can literally find the original Colonel Sanders KFC recipe and the one that you get in actual KFC is different. Well, Japan had a similar kind of eccentric character who opened the first KFC franchises there. It was a fellow by the name of Takeshi Akawara, and he, in 1970 he opened the first KFCs in Japan but one night... He had a very intense dream and in this dream he envisioned KFC being associated with Christmas in Japan and he wrote it down and he embarked on this aggressive marketing campaign in Japan to get Japanese people to eat KFC on Christmas Day and it worked. And now over in Japan millions of people every Christmas Day like they book their Christmas dinner weeks in advance. They all get a Christmas fried chicken bucket on Christmas day in Japan and they dress up Colonel Sanders as Santa Claus which is particularly funny because like Colonel Sanders is a rotund older grey haired man and when you put a Santa Claus costume on him he looks like Santa Claus except he doesn't have his beard so when you see Colonel Sanders dressed as Santa Claus in Japan it doesn't look like Colonel Sanders it just looks like Santa Claus with a soul patch and I was asking myself why is that so silly to me why does that seem so silly and funny that Santa Claus in Japan the popular image is as a result of this corporate avatar this big corporations avatar dressed up as Santa Claus and it's actually not that silly because Santa Claus as, as we know it In the West, that image of Santa Claus was actually constructed by Coca-Cola. Like, on Coca-Cola's own website, it says, Before 1931, there were many different depictions of Santa Claus around the world, including a tall, gaunt man and an elf There was even a scary Santa Claus. But in 1931, Coca-Cola commissioned illustrator Haddon Sandblum to paint Santa for Christmas advertisements. Those paintings established Santa as a warm, happy character with human features, including rosy cheeks, a white beard, twinkling eyes, and laughter lines. So, when I say Santa Claus to you, and this vision comes into your head of the big white beard and the smiling face and the red costume, that was invented by Coca-Cola. Like, they didn't invent Santa Claus. Santa Claus is from, like, the 1830s, from the Victorian period. And he's based on a fella called Saint Nicholas, who was a 13th century turkish saint but the popular image of santa claus was a construction of the coca-cola company this giant corporation advertising bleeding into real life bleeding into the popular imagination just like colonel sanders in a santa claus suit i suppose what i'm teasing at for my hot take is the complete social construction of what christmas is so i suppose the most obvious thing to say about christmas is it's the celebration of the birth of christ all right jesus christ was born on christmas day fair play to him but in the new testament the bible the new testament of the bible there's actually no date given for the birth of christ it's not mentioned the actual date of when he was born it's not mentioned so why do we do christmas on the 25th of december so at the start of the podcast, I mentioned yesterday, the 21st of December, because it was the summer solstice. And the summer solstice is literally when the days start getting longer. Today is a little bit longer than yesterday, and tomorrow is going to be even longer. You won't notice it, but that's the case. And that's always been the case, because it's that's rooted in observable science. And something that's kind of ubiquitous to all cultures before organised religion sun worship the worship of the sun like to primitive societies they look up into the sky and there's this big glowing warm ball that provides everything, it provides light it provides heat and it's clearly responsible for the growth of crops and the health of animals the sun is life so Early humans looked up at the sun and said, Well, that's God. That glowing ball up there is God. It's very important. When it's shining bright, I'm warm, and I've got a source of food. When it's not, when it's black, the sun isn't there. I'm fucking freezing cold and I don't have any food. So as you can imagine, the 21st of December is very, very fucking important. Like we today, we've lost contact with the terror of winter. Like we've got houses and we can keep ourselves warm and we can store food. But to primitive societies, winter would have been absolutely fucking terrifying. You've got your harvest around August and you've got your food stored and hopefully some methods to preserve food. But by the time December gets around, you're running out of food and you're very concerned about will there be another harvest is that sun going to come back strong like if you don't have a solid understanding of astrophysics and astronomy and you believe that the sun is God like what how can you confidently say oh don't worry about it the sun is definitely coming back I know it's winter now but don't worry about it the sun will be back in a few months how do you know for sure you don't So the summer solstice is cause for great fucking celebration because there's your confirmation right there that yeah, the sun is coming back. Like in Ireland, we have uh, this wonderful, wonderful archaeological site called Newgrange because Newgrange is, it's a passage tomb. It's 4,000 years old. It's older than the pyramids. And every fucking year on the 21st of December, people go to Newgrange because 4,000 years ago, the people that were living in Ireland had built this huge tomb. And on the 21st of December, the light of the summer solstice shines down this tomb and illuminates a central plate. And the ingenuity of that is just incredible. To think that 4,000 years ago, there was people in Ireland who had... A sufficient understanding of astronomy to be able to build this giant tomb, where the sun only shines down on it, and exactly the time of the solstice—that's amazing. And people are always racking their brains about, why did they want this four thousand years ago? What did they do? What rituals did they perform? Why? Why does the sun come down here only only at the solstice? My guess is fucking paranoia. I reckon to the people in Ireland four thousand years ago. Newgrange to them was like the most important scientific centre that they had available to them and what it's doing is testing whether the sun is actually coming back or not like if you're in the middle of December you're kind of running out of your rations it's fucking freezing cold you kind of better hope that that sun comes back or you're absolutely fucked because another month of that cold and darkness and everybody starves. So of course you're going to build this giant place with a shaft and that on the 21st of December everyone gathers round and as if that sun goes through that shaft and the light hits that plate then they can just rub their hands together and go, that's it lads, the sun is back. The sun is fucking back. We're sorted. Another year. Great. And I reckon that's what Newgrange is. Like... We know, obviously, here's this building that can tell when the solstice is happening. But we think of it as, oh, it was this big religious druidic thing. Of course there would have been religion around it, but I reckon it was a centre of science. That's science right there. This is the most important piece of information that you're going to receive this year. The sun is born again. And it wasn't just the Irish that were doing that. The recognition of the summer solstice was something that was happening all over Europe. All over the northern hemisphere where the 21st of December is the fucking solstice. And you have to assume it was happening in the Americas as well where the solstice was occurring. But then you think of it in the context of Christianity. Like Christianity comes 2,000 years after fucking Newgrange. Like the church clearly just picked the 25th of December they just picked it out of the air it's not there in the bible that Christ was born then but the early church would have said for thousands of years all these people in Europe are celebrating the birth of the sun on the 21st of December let's just pick the fucking 25th and say that Christ was born then and Christ is basically the exact same as the sun like ye think the sun is God this fella here is God he's the sun not only is he the sun He's his own father. He's God and the son and everything. He's the whole shebang all at once. It was a corporate branding move. It was a social construct. Like your man in Japan. You know? Okay, people are recognising Christmas. They're celebrating it. They're going out. How can I get everybody in Japan to also eat KFC on Christmas Day? Better do some strong advertising so that it makes sense. And that's what the early church did. They looked at the summer solstice was being celebrated all over the gaff let's assimilate the story of Christ nicely into these pre-existing traditions so that it's a smooth transition and even today that's quite nice because if you're not into Christianity or you're not into religion in any way and sometimes this might jar with you if you're celebrating Christmas celebrate Christmas in terms of the rebirth of the sun that's still happening that's a beautiful thing to celebrate Like, I'm legitimately happy that the days are going to start getting longer now. That's something I'm actually happy about and something I'm quite happy celebrating Christmas for that. So I'd really like to kind of tease at the roots of Christmas. I want to talk about a a Roman festival that was before Christmas called Saturnalia, which happened around the 23rd of December. And the Romans celebrated this and they kind of took it from another celebration that the Greeks had before this, but this was Christmas before Christmas as such, and it was for the god Saturn, but it celebrated the return of the sun and the solstice. Before I get into Saturnalia, uh, let's do a little ocarina pause. Don't have the ocarina, I've got the shaker. Ocarina is missing in action for quite some time, And I kind of wanted a little break from the ocarina and I like the shaker. So here we go. Here's the shaker pause.
1: Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness.
0: A much more gentle sound, I think. So that was the shaker pause. You would have heard an advertisement there for something. I don't know. It's algorithmically generated based on what you search for. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash The Blind By Podcast. This podcast is my full-time job. This is how I earn a living. This podcast needs to be my full-time job. Uh, because of the amount of work that's required to put it out every week and the amount of research that goes into it thoroughly enjoyable work that i absolutely adore but if you like listening to this podcast if it gives you a bit of peace during the week if it distracts you if you're consuming it and enjoying it just please consider paying me for that work that i'm doing all right all i'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month And for that, you get four and a half hours of content. But if you can't afford this, don't worry about it. You can listen for free. Like you might be out of work. You mightn't have the money right now. You can listen for free. That's absolutely fine. Because the person who's paying for this podcast is actually paying for you to listen for free. So everybody gets a podcast. I get to earn a living. It's a wonderful model that's based on kindness and soundness. Also, the Patreon model keeps this podcast independent. No advertiser can come to me and tell me what to talk about. I get to put out content each week that I'm genuinely passionate about and that I want to put out. I get to put out the podcast that I want to put out. Because when you rely upon sponsors and advertisers exclusively, they can change the content of the podcast. They can ask a podcaster to don't talk about this, do talk about that. Speak more about this. Can you take that bit out? And advertisers in general, they're not interested in the best podcast. They're not interested in creative solutions. They're only interested in making decisions that help their brand. And that's no crack for a podcast listener. So becoming a patron allows me to have full creative control over this podcast, which is the reason you're listening to it in the first place. And it means having the agency to turn down advertisers if I don't want to be involved with them. And consider all that stuff, not just for my podcast, but for for any independent podcast that you're enjoying. If you're listening to a small podcast that has one person or a little team of people making it, make sure and support those podcasts in any way you can. And it doesn't have to be monetary. You can share the podcast, leave reviews, like it. All that stuff really helps any independent podcast, especially in this new environment, this post-pandemic environment where Small podcasters are kind of being buried by this new glut of large corporate podcasts that has a lot of money behind it and is just hiring big names. And no one making the podcast is truly passionate about the content. So please support independent podcasters within that environment. Catch me on Twitch for my never-ending video game musical. I won't be doing it this week because... It's like Christmas Eve. So I'm not going to be on Twitch this week. I will be on it next week. Twitch.tv forward slash The Blind by Podcast. So in ancient Rome. The thing you have to remember with Rome. Like Rome was like most of fucking Europe. Rome lasted for a thousand years. It was... The Roman Empire was huge. The Romans were the ones who crucified Christ. But in ancient Rome. There was a, a festival that happened around, from the 17th of December to the 23rd of December. So focused around the solstice. And this festival was called Saturnalia, after the god Saturn. But it was a celebration of, oh, the sun is coming back. And this festival is one of the festivals in Europe that can be seen as a precursor to Christmas. Because it happens at the exact same time. So Saturnalia was, what makes Saturnalia important... Is it's this festival that lasts like about a week around what we now call Christmas. But within Saturnalia, there's a tradition known as the Carnivalesque, right? It was a type of carnival. But what would happen during Saturnalia is the established rules of society would be reversed. So. During Saturnalia, people were allowed to gamble. People wouldn't work. People would get shit-faced drunk. People would eat loads of food. People would dress in clothes that were the opposite of their gender. Saturnalia was like a controlled chaos. It was a festival where the people of Rome, or the people of the Roman Empire, got to go absolutely apeshit for a week. And all the rules and regulations and causes of stress in their normal life for the rest of the year, they're gone. Society becomes topsy-turvy for a week. It was mayhem. Think of it like fucking electric picnic when primary school teachers take ecstasy. What I'm describing there is, is referred to as the carnivalesque. And that phrase, the carnivalesque, comes from a Russian philosopher... From the 19th century, called Mikhail Bakhtin, and Bakhtin developed this theory of looking at the history of Western culture in terms of the carnivalesque. When I say the West, I mean cultures that can trace their roots to Greek and Roman ideas. All right, Europe, America, Australia, but with these cultures, they tend to be very individualistic and hierarchical. So throughout Western history. There's always these oppressive forces at play. Whether these forces are very wealthy people controlling the poor, or patriarchy, or heteronormativity, hierarchies of power, right? Whether it be the church, feudalism, the political structure of the Roman Empire, whatever, there's always been strict hierarchy of power, and that's a, a Western thing. And Mikhail Bakhtin his analysis kind of says that the reason that this prevailed is because it's a bit like a pressure cooker. That if the people who are being oppressed under a hierarchical structure are allowed to let off steam a little bit, then it doesn't explode. And he called this steam the carnivalesque, the carnival. So throughout all of Western culture, there's been these feasts and festivals whereby the rules of society are thrown on their heads for like a week. You can drink all you want, you can fuck all you want, you can eat all you want, you don't have to go to work, and most importantly, you can take the piss out of your rulers, and it's okay for that small amount of time. Because one thing that Backton analysed in Western culture is that solemnity and seriousness, that power structures are maintained by the people in power behaving in a very serious way so whether that be the military religion, the Roman Empire whatever the fuck the people in power have this real performative seriousness that doesn't allow any humour in but during a time of carnival the carnivalesque, you can take the piss you can take the piss out of those power structures but once the carnival is over straight back to normal life you can't laugh at the king you can't laugh at the politician you can't laugh at the priest Because the very act of laughter deconstructs their power. Their power is based on a really performed seriousness. Also, Bhaktain states that within carnival and carnivalesque culture in Western society, the wearing of masks and costumes was hugely important. Because if you've got some festival where you're taking the absolute pace out of the local king, and this is allowed for a week you better do it with a fucking mask on your face. Or if you want to go to a party and dress in a different gender, or if you want to be gay, or you want to be adulterous, you do it with a mask on your face so that when the carnival is over, you don't get in trouble. Now, why do I know about Mikhail Bakhtin? Because when I was doing my my master's degree in art in 2015, I was studying Mikhail Bakhtin and bringing a lot of his theories into my own work. So when you do... When you do a master's in art, right, as an artist, basically what you're doing is you do your art and then you have to show that you can explain exactly what it is you're doing using a load of research and big words. And that's basically it on an academic level. So as an example, if I appear on television on a dead serious talk show and I'm wearing a plastic bag in my head and I look like a fucking clown but I'm speaking about something that's really, really serious like suicide or mental health but I'm speaking about it with genuine care and compassion but while doing it while looking like a clown with a mask on my face I'm engaging there in a carnivalesque backed in type performance art when the clown speaks with sincerity about something that's very serious that subverts the Rules of society in a carnivalesque fashion so that the message actually has a lot more emotional resonance than if I was to obey the rules of society and only speak about mental health while wearing a suit and performing solemnity. Now, on a personal level, I don't think an artist should have to do that. I don't think an artist should have to be able to explain exactly what it is they're doing and contextualize it within research or, within, or using big words I think that's harsh It that's just the that there is the solemn hierarchical structure of academia within art which that was a set of rules I had to play by in order to get a master's degree But the, re- the reason I'm saying it is I'm trying to explain the theories of Mikhail Bakhtin in order to work towards this hot take about Christmas so this festival Saturnalia that the Romans had which was before Christmas this was straight up carnival It was a late December solstice celebration of the sun where for one week the rules of society are turned on its head and the ordinary people who are under the thumb of the powerful people get to do whatever the fuck they want. And the powerful people would even participate. Like Roman generals and powerful politicians would put masks on their face and they would serve their servants. Like, one thing that was hugely important in all carnivalesque traditions was the crowning of a false king. Like, within a structure whereby if you have a king in power or an emperor in power, if you take the piss out of that king or that emperor, you're fucking dead. Except during festivals. Like, a good Irish example of this is we have a tradition in Kerry called the Puck Fair, where once a year uh, they catch a wild goat and they put a crown on its head and they declare it the king. We also have Irish traditions such as on St. Stephen's Day, again down in Kerry, there's a thing called the Wren Boys, where people dress up in costumes made out of straw or whatever and they cover their faces and they go around in gangs and they call around to people's houses and they drink all the drink in people's houses and jump up and down and sing and dance and subvert the rules of society. What I'm getting at is Christmas is a continuation of the carnivalesque The carnival tradition within Western culture where it's a little period of time where the rules don't apply. But by engaging in it, it's also one of those things that keeps the status quo of power in place. Because we get to let off just the right amount of steam before we return to normality. So Saturnalia, that Roman festival, as you can guess, that eventually developed into Christmas Right? when Christianity became a thing like the Roman Empire became Christian I think around the year 300 so Saturnalia is one festival that would have been considered pagan so anything that isn't Christian would have been called pagan so that was a, a pagan festival for the god Saturn then there was a German festival called Yule you know the phrase Yule tide. Yule kind of developed into Christmas as well and then there was other Celtic, there was Celtic traditions where cross-dressing, again, was, it was a huge part of this. But all of these pagan traditions eventually turned into Christmas. And these were pagan carnivalesque traditions. And why Christmas is carnivalesque is because Christmas is about the birth of Christ. Alright, that's, if you think of religion... ...religion is a very strict... ...like Catholicism... ...Protestantism... ...Christianity... ...the, the religious structure of Christianity... ...very hier- hierarchical... ...very solemn... ...there's fucking no room for humour... ...within Christianity... ...it's dead serious... ...throughout the Middle Ages... ...people been burned at the stake... ...for heresy and all these things... ...but yet during the celebration of Christmas... ...throughout the Middle Ages openly pagan things were allowed like where do you think Christmas trees come from? What the fuck does a Christmas tree have to do with Christ? Nothing the Christmas tree tradition like that's thousand years old if you think of pre-Christmas festivities which had to do with the solstice the, the sun reappearing what people used to do in, in pagan traditions is they would find an evergreen tree ...like a pine tree... ...because when you think of winter... ...it's death... ...all the leaves are falling... ...there's no light... ...deciduous trees are dying... ...so what people would do... ...is they would get... ...a tree whose leaves don't fall off... ...a fucking evergreen... ...a pine tree... ...and they would hang it over their door... ...so the Christmas tree... ...came from a deeply pagan tradition... ...and you get the... ...this pine tree... ...and then you put baubles on it... ...and they represent fruit... So it basically means here we are in December, there's no sun, there's no crops are growing, but we have this evergreen tree with fruit on it, with symbolic fruit. Now that's real pagan, but yes, it got comfortably assimilated into the Christmas tradition because it's carnivalesque. Christmas is topsy-turvy. The rules don't apply. Technically, that should be blasphemy. ...you're supposed to be respecting the birth of the wonderful Jesus Christ... ...and you're going around the place with a fucking evergreen tree like a pagan. So what you find with Christmas when you trace the history of Christmas celebrations... ...as a folk festival... ...throughout the Middle Ages... ...throughout these really strict times... ...where to say anything bad about religion is, is blasphemy and heresy... ...Christmas existed as this tiny little window where the rules got turned on their heads and there wasn't consequences for paganism or for debauchery or for excessive eating or for excessive drinking or for not showing up to work so basically like what christmas developed as was you had all these these formerly pagan cultures being overtaken by christianity and the strict power structure and hierarchy that that brought but Christmas existed as the the carnival period where those people could let that stuff out could let off that steam could still celebrate some pagan traditions and assimilate them and for a blind eye to be turned for a small amount of time and the thing is when we think of Christmas today so if you think of Christmas today Christmas means giving gifts, uh, getting together with family, eating a meal, that's actually, that only really came in around the Victorian period, around the late industrial revolution. So before that point in Europe, like the 1400s, the 1500s, Christmas as it was celebrated by the ordinary people was still very carnivalesque. So these people were like agricultural labourers, They lived in villages. The food would have been harvested. They didn't have a lot of work to do because it's December and they're agricultural labourers. They were eating the food they'd saved up. They were drinking. They'd go apeshit at Christmas. And what they also used to engage in is a thing called wassailing. Where they, poor people, would, like, just for the period, the 12 days of Christmas, poor people would call to the houses of rich people and bang on the door and start screaming and roaring... and demanding food for the rich people... and it was all in good fun... and the rich people would give them food... and the society was flipped on its head for a few days... that was the carnivalesque... but what changed this was the start of the industrial revolution... and the appearance of cities... and all the problems that went along with cities... and also the amount of people that were in cities... so by the 18th century... Now the poor people weren't like agricultural labourers in villages. Now they're workers in factories. And there's loads of them. And with the overcrowding that started to begin in cities around the 18th century, you start to see the problems, modern problems like addiction, poverty, vagrancy. So now when a carnivalesque mood happens at Christmas and everyone gets shit-faced, And now there's hundreds of people in the industrial slums of London. Now this carnivalesque Christmas celebration gets ugly. Now it turns into a riot. Now it becomes antisocial. So this is where Christmas starts to develop into what we would now recognise as something Christmassy. And it starts with Queen Victoria or the Famine Queen as we call her here in Ireland. So Queen Victoria marries a German Prince Albert from Germany so I mentioned earlier a a pagan festival called Yule and this would have been a Germanic pagan festival, this is where Christmas trees come from like I said the pagans years ago used to have evergreen trees to symbolise this tree will grow even though there's no sun so that had developed into Christmas trees with decorations on them also the Germans were big into their Christmas decorations candles The Germans were big into Yule logs. And the Germans were pretty big into a saint from Turkey from the 3rd century called fucking Saint Nicholas who became Santa Claus. So the modern trappings of Christmas, Santa Claus, Christmas trees, giving presents, spending time with family, that started with the fucking Victorians because Victoria married a German. Then you have books like Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, which is very much about charity, stuff like that comes out. So... Today's Christmas is a Victorian construction. But here's the sadness that I find within it. So as I mentioned earlier, Christmas was always carnivalesque. Right? The rules of society tip upside down and there's debauchery and madness. And then this kind of stops when the Victorians come in and it stops around the late Industrial Revolution. Because like I said, debauchery in a country village with a small amount of people in the 1500s is very different to the the Victorian slums where you have poverty, alcoholism, vagrancy and the the modern problems of society and the trauma of society. But the thing is, Christmas still remains as carnivalesque. It doesn't become solemn. Because if, if Christmas was to become solemn, then it would become purely religious. It would be just about, this is Christ's fucking birthday, go to mass and do some religious shit Christmas doesn't become that way it has nothing to do with Christ Christmas still is utterly fucking ridiculous like a big theme of the carnivalesque is that the rules of society are turned upside down for a small period and humour and silliness and costumes and all this shit is a huge part of the carnivalesque so like Santa Claus what the fuck is that He's from the North Pole and he goes around the place with a load of reindeer and he travels into everyone's house in in 24 hours and unloads his sack on the end of children's beds. Like that's absurd. That's utterly absurd. It has nothing to do with Christ. So that there is an example of the carnivalesque. This profound irrationality that's technically blasphemous on Christ's birthday is permitted and allowed within the new Victorian definition of Christmas. So it's not solemn. It's still carnivalesque. But when it comes to what rules of society get turned on their head in the new modern definition of Christmas, the rules of society that get turned on their head are the ones that are now created by modern capitalism. So within the Industrial Revolution, within the, the Victorian period and the emerging middle class, you have the conditions of modern capitalism. So if you're poor that means you work in horrible conditions in a factory with no break and you're being absolutely exploited as a wage worker and then if you're middle class you maybe you own the factory or you have power within it and now you're pursuing massive amounts of greed. You no longer live in a small village so you don't really know your neighbours so you're in a community where you're disconnected from other people around you, you're disconnected from your family You're disconnected from your sense of self. So that environment is so toxic that what becomes subversive is simply spending time with your loved ones, being generous to them, enjoying a good meal and not having to go to work. Like, subversiveness at Christmas in the carnivalesque tradition used to mean taking all your clothes off and fucking off into the woods and doing a bunch of pagan shit and taking the piss out of the king. And this was allowed, that's the whole point of it. That that was the nature of a festival. But now you think about everything you love about Christmas. You're seeing your brother who you haven't seen in a year. Oh my God, we're all sitting together, we haven't done this in so long. You're giving and receiving gifts with people that you love. You're spending time and connecting with your family. You definitely don't have to go to work and your boss is not allowed to call you. Because of wage capitalism, the rat race, individualism, greed, distance that you must travel for work, moving away to work, because of all these things, something as basic as family, compassion and rest is now a subversive act of luxury that you can only do once a year. So that's my hot take about Christmas. That's my hot take. Christmas still exists as a a carnivalesque tradition where the rules are turned upside down. And were given a, a rebellious freedom for just one week. I hope that made sense because that was an extremely hot take. That was an extremely hot take. And I hope it was cohesive and not too far of a stretch. Have a lovely Christmas. Enjoy yourself you cunts. I'll be back next week. Um, I'm signing off now. After I sign off I'm going to come back on with my new weekly bit where I show you a song from my Twitch stream.
1: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
0: So, this is a relatively new part of this podcast where I, I sign off at the end with by showing you a song that. ...I make on my weekly Twitch stream. And I leave it at the end... ...because not everybody's interested in music... ...and don't want to force it on anybody. So basically what I do is... ...I go onto a website called Twitch... ...twitch.tv forward slash The Blind Boy Podcast... ...and this is a live streaming website. So once a week... ...I play a video game called Red Dead Redemption 2... ...live. And this is like a digital environment... ...it's a, a full... ...huge map of the United States in the 19th century and I just wander around it but as I'm doing this in my studio I have live instruments and recording equipment so I use the events of the video game as inspiration to write and record songs in the moment and it's a really enjoyable and fun way to make songs because the video game provides this continual random input that keeps me in a state of flow so I just make up songs as I go along and I don't know what's going to happen next when I'm doing it I'm just consistently engaged in the act of playing it's like I'm playing with fucking Lego and I don't know what I'm going to make I'm just doing it for the sake of it but instead of Lego it's making up songs on the spot so I'm going to play a song now that I actually made this last Thursday the song is called I was up a mountain tying up a priest because in the video game I was up a mountain on the video game and there was a priest uh, he was preaching, he was talking shit so I tied him up and put him on the back of my horse and as that was happening it kind of inspired a song in the moment so what I do is you can go to twitch.tv forward slash playing by podcast and you can even see me making this song actually you can go, last week's full stream would be up the song would have taken about 20 minutes to make live and then what I do is I I cut it down to 3 minutes here. So that's what you're being played is a, a 3 minute version of this. But this song was 100% made up on the spot. Uh, the music, the lyrics, and I used the video game to inspire what those lyrics will be. So here you go. I was up a mountain tying up a priest. I catch you next week.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. You see me on my horse And there's a priest tied
1: up on the back of it Will you tell the guards Will you run away and tell the guards I'm gonna have to shoot you I'm gonna have to kill you dead The wolves are coming for me coming for me, the wolves are coming for me, they can smell that priest on back of my horse they can smell his dead body, cause I was up a mountain, tying up a priest, oh, yes. I was in the mountains, tying up a priest. Body on the back of my horse, house, oh, and I, I put his body on the back of, of my horse. I was in the mountains, oh, tying up a priest. Tying up I was in the mountains, tying up a priest, and I put his body on. My his body on the back of my horse and i put his body on the back of my horse